Christian. Let's read from verse 11 down through verse number 18. We'll do so responsibly. I'll begin in verse 11. We'll begin together in verse number 12. The Bible says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Together, verse 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their works' sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you." Our theme this year is Love Works. I debated on continuing with the preaching calendar as it stands. Given the circumstances, I felt as though the topic that had already been pre-selected for today was very applicable to what's going on in the world, and so I have chosen to just continue on and preach that. We're in a series of sermons right now entitled, The People I Love. Today we'll look at uh, loving my fellow man, loving the broken, loving the broken. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for an opportunity to gather around the Bible. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that even though it was written several thousand years ago, Lord, it is still applicable even more so uh, than ever could have been today. Help us, Lord, to take the truths found here in 1 Thessalonians 5 and apply them to our hearts and lives. And Lord, may we leave here with a commitment to love the broken world around us. In Jesus' name, we ask all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you may maybe notice that we did not go over upcoming announcements uh, in the bulletin this morning. And uh, with good reason, there isn't a whole lot to cover, being that uh, things are about to uh, uh, be shut down around here as far as on-premise uh, type activities. But I, I do want to encourage you to open up your bulletin and look at the verse found there in the, in the center column. And uh, you'll notice Psalm 56, verse 3. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. This verse has uh, a lot of significance in my life. Now, I want to note that this was written by not some worrywart, not by someone who cowered in the corner in fear. This was written by King David. He was a man's man. He was a warrior. He uh, was um, uh, prohibited from building the temple because of all of the blood he had shed in battle. This was a soldier, this was a leader of men, and he said, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. The world right now is filled with fear. It is filled with uh, panic, anxiety. If not over fear of the virus, there are many people who are afraid of the economy and the downturn of the economy. Many of you are looking at the possibility of your uh, finances being greatly altered between the loss of jobs. Some small business owners are going to see their business uh, uh, wither up and struggle over the next few weeks as the economy is almost a pause button has been put on the economy. So where those who don't fear over the virus are afraid over the finances. I want to just share this with you. When I was a little boy, between the ages of, say, 6 and 7 or and 10 or 11 or so, I was plagued with nightmares. And I would have nightmares on a semi-regular basis. And some of them I was able to sleep through. Others of them would, 
wake me up in the middle of the night. And it wasn't because my family had bad TV habits per se. It was just one of those things where a boy's imagination can, can get the best of them. And I remember one night in particular, maybe the worst nightmare I ever had as a child, uh, someone was chasing me through the street with a knife. And I, um, uh, I was a good distance out ahead of this man. Uh, but uh, as I wore out and grew tired, he slowly began to catch me. And I can remember the panic and the anxiety and the fear and the worry that he was going to plunge that knife into my back and feeling as though the dream was so real that it wasn't even a dream, that it was actually happening. And I can remember waking up uh, feeling as though someone had a hold of my legs and I could not move my legs and I was uh, sleeping on a top bunk. I can, I can remember very clearly where I was when this happened and uh, I remember sitting up in my bed and sweat pouring off of me and screaming and, and, and just feeling as though I was about to die. And my, my turning and tossing and crying, my mom had already woken up and made her way to my bedside. And, and I remember grabbing hold of her and feeling as though I was going to die and telling her that I was about to be stabbed in the back. And she calmed me down. I was just seven or eight years old and she began to sing hymns to me and began to um, assure me that everything was going to be okay. I remember that night as I fell back asleep that uh, my mother quoted the verse to me over and over again, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Over the last week or two, fear the fear of people has been palpable. You can feel it in the air. Uh, I stopped at the uh, gas station on my way home Wednesday night, and uh, DJ was working behind the counter there at the gas station, and she was very fearful of what was going to happen. And I took the time to quote her some verses and try to calm her fear and her angst. To the Christian this morning, I just want to say, why should you fear when God is still in control? He has not forgotten about us. Why should I fear or worry over money concerns? Let me ask you this question. Can one ounce of worry alter your bank account for the better? It cannot. Me being fretful, me wringing my hands, me wandering over the what-ifs of life cannot help. It can only hurt. Is God still in control or isn't he? You remember Peter out on the water? Peter gets a lot of flack for sinking. But I have to say, I'm amazed that Peter walked on water. And he said, Lord, if it's you, let me, uh, bid, bid me come unto thee. And Peter uh, uh, grabbed edge of the boat in that storm and he stepped over the edge of the boat and put his foot on the water as though it was a concrete floor and then put his other foot over and slowly but surely let go of the edge of the boat and on liquid water had his eyes on Jesus and began to walk out on that water to Jesus. And you know what? what? As long as his eyes were on the Savior, as long as his sight was on the Savior, he was secure. When he took his sight and put it on the storm, what happened? He sunk. He sunk. Christian, you're either going to sink or find security on whether or not your sight is locked in on the storm or on the Savior. 
As long as his eyes were on the storm, it overwhelmed him and he sank. But after he sunk, he cried out, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. And the Lord pulled him up. And as long, then he placed his eyes on the Savior. And he stood through the storm with no struggle. Christian, this morning, are your eyes on the Savior or are your eyes on this storm? I want to say this morning that first Timothy, or second Timothy rather, chapter one and verse seven, Pastor Morales so eloquently preached this verse last week, reminds us that God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but rather He's given us the spirit of what? Power, love, and of a sound mind. A sound mind. Um, first John chapter four, verse 18 says this, there is no fear in love. Why? But perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. You show me where fear has risen up in you, has bowed up in you. You show me where you're wringing your hands in concerns. You show me where you're being driven by fear, and I'll show you where there is an absence of God's love. I don't know that there's a sermon that could be any more appropriate than today's sermon, and that is loving the broken. Is it, has there ever been a time where it's more evident in our lives that fear is everywhere? That brokenness is everywhere. People are broken and they need Christians to stand tall and shine bright for the Savior. They need to see within us that there is a calmness and a peace and a assuredness that God is still on the throne and everything is going to be okay. I want to take a moment out of the sermon and I want to address those watching the live stream, especially those watching the live stream who generally do not uh, watch our services. Maybe you're even watching this after the service has streamed live. And I just want to say to you, my friend, that God loves you. He loves you very much. He loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for your sins. My friend, you look at a troubled world and you wonder how God could let this happen. In times like this, we wonder where is God? And my friend, God is ever present. He has not forgotten about us and he has not stopped loving us. I think about times with my children where they're so sure they can accomplish a task on their own and they don't need uh, their mother and I to help them with it. And uh, I know they need our help, but they think they don't need our help. And so they push our help to the side and they act as though they can do it on their own. And it isn't that my wife and I stop loving them, but sometimes we walk away and we let them fail so that they'll come back to us and see the importance of our need. And I want to remind those watching this morning that God has not stopped loving us, but as a world, we have pushed God to the side and we have told him we don't need your help. We can make money on our own. We can spend money on our own. Uh, we have doctors and medicine and we, uh, we have life on a string. We have the world figured out. We don't need you. And God says, okay, I'll take my hands off. You go ahead and do it on your own. Please hear me, this is not the time to point fingers in God's face. This is the time to call on God for help. What did Jesus do to show us that He loves us? He took the most prized treasure He had in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And he sent him down here to planet earth to live among us. Jesus became a man. He was 100% man while being 100% God. In him was no guile. In him was no sin. And jealous men took him and nailed him to a cross. And the Bible tells us that Jesus became our sin so that in turn we could become his righteousness. You know, my friend, it isn't a question of whether or not Jesus died for you, because he did. The question is whether or not you're going to receive him. Jesus offers to you the gift of eternal life. He purchased it with his own blood. And he says to you, if you'll call upon my name with the spirit of faith, the heart of faith, I will save you. I will save you. That salvation gift is free. You must choose to accept it. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, For with a mouth man believeth unto righteousness, and with, or rather for with a heart... Uh, now I'm all turned around here. Let's see. Help me out here. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. And Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We must believe in our heart. We must confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And I would encourage you, if you have not done so, to do that today. That is step number one, to become a child of God. That must happen to become God's child. Let me speak again to the church this morning, those here and those who regularly attend and are saved and watching online. Let me encourage you that the world needs you today more than ever to help them cast out their fear by you loving on them. Let's look at three simple truths from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we talk about this important topic of loving my fellow man, loving the broken, loving the broken. Number one, notice first the church's call. The church's call. Please take notes this morning. The church's call. Look with me at First Thessalonians chapter number five and verse number eleven. It says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Look at verse twelve. And we beseech, we beg you, we plead with you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now, verse 12 is an interesting verse. Verse 12 says here that you are to take note of who the church leadership is and you are to esteem them very highly in love. You are to love them for their work's sake. And I could get up here this morning and talk about how important it is that you love on me as your pastor and you love on your associate pastor and how you pour love all over them. But can I just tell you this morning that the way that you love on me and the way that you love on Pastor Morales is not necessarily by patting us on the back when we get through preaching or singing and say, boy, you sure did a good job with that special, or boy, you sure did a good job with that sermon. The way you love on us, the way that you esteem us is not necessarily by pouring gifts on us on our birthdays or at Christmas. The way that you love on your church leadership is twofold. Or rather, it's, it's, it's mentioned, in, it's the same truth, but mentioned two ways. Go back with me at verse number 11. Look there. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. 
boy, if you want to love on the pastor, then what you need to do is help the pastor comfort people. You need to help the pastor edify the people. Look at the way it's worded at the end of verse 13. And be at peace among yourselves. You know what makes for a happy pastor? You know what makes for a happy preacher? When the people in the church get along with each other. Nothing makes the pastor happier than when the people in the church get along with each other. You know what keeps a pastor awake at night? When there's strife in the church. When there's strife in the church. When two of the sheep that the pastor has been put over to be an under-shepherd of, when two of the sheep are attacking each other and fighting with each other and hurting each other, nothing hurts the pastor's heart more than when the sheep cannot get along with each other. Boy, I've spent many nights awake. I've spent many nights. I don't have nightmares anymore of dangerous men chasing me down in the street with a knife. I have nightmares now of church members who can't get along. Boy, more than once, I have dreamt about church members fighting with each other. And when I call a pastor friend on the phone, uh, whether he lives uh, uh, north of here, south of here, east, west of here, when I get another senior pastor on the phone and a friend of mine and we're talking and I ask him how he's doing or he ask me, asks me how I'm doing, do you know what that means? It doesn't mean, well, you know, my dog is healthy and uh, my kids are growing up. What that means is, how are the people in your church getting along? Or, how are the people in your church getting along? That's really what we're asking each other. A pastor's happiness is really gauged like this. Are the people in my church getting along? Is there unity in the church? Sometimes we'll say things like this to each other when pastors talk. Well, right now, everything's calm, but it could just be the calm before the storm. We're concerned that there's going to be division and divisiveness and hurting and attacking. And oftentimes, when pastors pray for each other, they pray for peace within the church. How can you esteem the pastor in love? Here, let me help you with this. Be a peacemaker. Help sow seeds of peace and not division. When you see divisiveness, go over and help settle it. Go over and be someone who brings peace and calm to a storm, not hurt to a storm. The call of the church. Number two, notice the broken's Conduct. One thing is for certain, and it is this. People are broken. And broken people sow divisiveness. The truth is, all of us, on some level, are broken. And that brokenness is going to bring divisiveness. It isn't a question of whether or not people are going to offend, because offenses will come. The question is, when offenses come, how are we going to handle it? When I was a high school student, I believe I was a senior in high school, I was uh, uh, going somewhere with my mom, and uh, we left our home, and I was uh, uh, sitting in the passenger seat, and I was sharing with her some problem that was in my life. I don't remember what the problem was, but I was going into detail about the problem and the struggle, and uh, we, we pulled up to a traffic light there at the end of the suburb, and all of a sudden my mom just interrupts me telling her about my problem, and she says in a very stern and, and, and strong tone of voice, everyone is dysfunctional, get over it. And I was aghast, I was taken aback, and I looked over at my mom and I said, it's not that big of a problem. And she just bursts out in laughter. She went from listening and being sympathetic and caring and kind to being stern and hard and mean 
And then seconds later, and I thought, Mom, do we need to take you to a, to a, to a loony bin? Do we need to take you to the doctor? Uh, are you schizophrenic? Uh, I'm schizophrenic and so am I. I, I is, is there, what's going on with you here? And, and she, she's laughing to a point now where she's crying. And she points out in front of us, in the car in front of us, at a bumper sticker that read, Everyone is dysfunctional. Get over it. And uh, the truth is, everyone has issues. Everyone is broken in some way, are they not? Uh, so we need to understand this. We need to understand that people are broken. And as people are broken, that conduct is going to be displayed differently. As we begin to uh, identify the brokenness of people, boy, then we can go back to Scripture and see how to handle them. Let's focus first on people's brokenness. Notice letter A, some are disorderly. Some are disorderly. Look at with me back at First. Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. The Bible says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Unruly. Those who live outside of the bounds of the rules. Now on some level, everyone has a problem with keeping the rules. On some level, everyone does. Now there are those of you here that are very particular about following rules and knowing the procedures and living within the boundaries. And you're more loyal to rules than you are uh, to people. And when other people don't keep the rules that they've set, boy, that just drives you up a wall. How dare you set a rule that you don't keep? And how dare you put a procedure in place and then you walk all over that procedure and people that change the rules in the middle of the game. How many of you ever played a board game with someone and they just changed the rules right in the middle of it for their own help? And that's not fair. And uh, Listen, all of you that are going to be stuck indoors with each other and playing Playing board games. Can I just encourage you all to do your best to follow the rules that have been established? Listen, my family, we've had more knockdown, drag out fights over board games than maybe anything else. We sit down to play a board game, and then it ends with, with, with tempers flaring and people upset. And so can I encourage you that over the next several weeks, as you're locked indoors with each other, that you not fight over silly board games, and if you have, that you apologize and you clean that up. Listen, in our home, uh, there's me, where I generally care about the rules, but I don't need to know every one of them when it comes to a board game. And then there's Matthew. Now, when we get a new board game, Matthew opens up the, the board game, and the first thing he does is he searches for the directions. And he reads every last rule. The boy is a walking rule machine. He reads them in English. He reads them in Spanish. He reads them in French. And he reads them in Chinese. Okay, not really. But he reads all of them. And he makes sure that we all know every rule uh, before we get into the game. And listen, I am thankful for people like Matthew who care so deeply about the rules. Uh, but can I tell you this, that all of us on some level struggle with keeping the rules. All of us do. There are, however, some people who live to break the rules. They live to break the rules. You ever met someone like that? Wherever you draw the line, wherever authority draws the line, they're going to look to jump across the line and see what happens when the line is crossed. Furthermore, these people generally jump across the line, and then when they're punished, they act as though they are the victim. How dare you come at me? I didn't know that was the rule. I didn't know that was wrong. Or it, it really wasn't that bad. You see how they 
push the limits. They're constantly pushing the limits. They're crossing the line. They want to see what happens when they cross the line. Can I tell you that there are people like this in every group of folks that you'll find. They live to break the rules. They want to know what's going to happen to them if they break the rules. Why are people that way? Do you know that some people just, that's just how they operate. That's their, uh, that's their way of going about things. Why do people act that way? Can I tell you why? They're broken. Something in their life happened to them at some point that caused them to be strongly bent toward rebellion more so than others. They don't need you to throw stones at them. They need you to love them. Some are broken. I think of King Saul. He's anointed king, and at first he's humble. And listen, in short order of being king, he's there in the valley waiting for Samuel to come and offer up the sacrifice so he can go to war. His men are beginning to scatter and hide in the caves. And what does he do? He breaks the rules. He offers the sacrifice. And Samuel comes down and says to him, listen, you have crossed the line. You were a king. You were not a priest. You should not have done that. And then what happens just a couple of chapters later in 1 Samuel chapter 16? Well, we know that he's told to go kill the Amalekites and, and, and kill every last one of them. And does he do it? No, he keeps the king alive and he saves back some of the finest of the animals for himself. He just couldn't keep the rules. And some today are that way. In any grouping, there are going to be those who look to press and break the rules. Some are disorderly. Letter B, speaking of the broken's conduct, some are discouraged. Look back with me at First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded. The feeble-minded. Now this doesn't mean someone who is a simpleton. This means someone who is just discouraged. Discouraged. We all are discouraged sometimes, are we not? Every last one of us have points in our life where our shoulders stoop and we feel as though that life is just too much to bear. We all go through this, do we not? Um, Some people just seem to live there all the time. Have you met people like this? No matter what you say to them, they're just down in the dumps. Listen, the glass could be 80% of the way full. They're focusing on the 20% that's empty, right? Uh, They can take a a bad situation and it's it's catastrophic. They can take a good situation and it's just okay. They never seem to smile. They seem to find the negative in everything. They, they're, they're, they're down, down, down. This is the type of person that when they call, you just want to hit the decline button or hit the side rocker and let them go to voicemail. And then after they leave a voicemail, delete their voicemail because you don't want their discouragement dumping on you. Have we met people like this before? Some folks are just Johnny Raincloud, Debbie Downer. They're always in the dumps. Some are discouraged. Letter C notice, some are delicate. Some are delicate. Look at verse number 14 with me again. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, the weak. There are those in this world who are just weak in every way. I'm amazed that when we have prayer request time, and I'm not picking on anybody here, but I'm amazed that when we have prayer request time, and by the way, it's been this way in every church I've been a part of since I can remember. Some people always have some sort of medical problem. All the time. Uh, Either their head hurts, or their stomach hurts, or their arm hurts, 
or their leg hurts. And it isn't just occasionally, it's more often than it is not. Brother Marcus here, you work uh, as a uh, chiropractic, right? And you, some people uh, seem to never have problems. Other people, everything hurts all the time, right? And you look at them and you say, you're fine. But they're not. They're just weak. They're physically weak. Other people are emotionally weak. And this fits a little bit in with the feeble-minded, but everything is, is, is overwhelming to them. They, they can't handle uh, any sort of over-sensory, and they, they are overwhelmed. And uh, Boy, they're afraid to be in a big crowd. They're afraid to be in a small room. They're, they're afraid to, uh, to, to, to be alone. They're, 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 they're just afraid. They're emotionally frail. They're emotionally weak. And then others are spiritually weak. And no matter what you say to try to help them, it's never quite enough. We have those in this world who are broken. They're unruly. They're disorderly. They're, uh, they're, they're discouraged. They're delicate. They're weak. And we need to do our part to love on these people. Number three, notice the Christian's counter. The Christian's counter. How should a Christian handle these people? How should a Christian handle these people? Now, let me just say up front. Well, let's look at verse 15. We'll let the Bible do the, do the explaining here. Look at verse 15. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Look at the behavior here of a Christian. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Some people drive you to a place where all you can really do is pray. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now let me remind you, that the goal of the passage is peace. Peace within the church. The way that you highly esteem your pastor in love is to make sure that the church is at peace. That there's not disunity. That there's not problems. That there's not this sowing of discord. That there is this constant state of peace. This encourages your pastor's heart. Now, that's the goal. But is that reality? It's not always realistic. Why? Because there are broken people within the church. Hey, that's me and that's you. So how do you handle when offenses come? I have learned that in my marriage that offenses are going to come. Sometimes I'm going to hurt my wife's feelings. Sometimes my wife is going to hurt my feelings. And it's not a question of are we going to offend each other because we are going to offend each other. The question is not is there going to be offense. The question is what's the turnaround time after the offense? How quickly are we going to get it fixed? How quickly are we going to handle it? How quickly are we going to forgive, apologize, forgive, and move on? And so within a church body, yes, there's going to be offenses, but how quickly is the offender going to stop offending and the offended going to forgive and move on? So uh, the Bible here has given us the list of people and how they offend. And now we're going to go back, circle back around, and look at how the offender is to behave is to behave. Letter A, notice, warn the unruly or expose. Warn the unruly or expose. Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 14. The Bible says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them. Warn them that are unruly. We talk, we're talking about exposing this morning. Well, let me first talk about what we're not supposed to expose. We are not to expose our own anger. When someone behaves disorderly, you know what it does? 
Sometimes when people behave in a way that's unruly or disorderly, it hurts me. And it hurts you. Their breaking of the rules directly offends me or directly offends you. How are we supposed to handle that? Are we supposed to render evil for evil? What's the old phrase? Finish it for me if you can. Uh, and, and by the way, this phrase is wrong. Okay, This is a bad mentality, but you've heard it before. Some say we are to fight fire with... Is that biblical? Are we to burn down the forest because they're burning down the forest? No, we fight fire with the Word of God. We fight fire with the Word of God. Instead of fighting fire with fire, we are to love them in their brokenness. We are to understand that there are going to be people within our church who just look to break the rules. Yes, it hurts others, and they should care, but they don't care. They're going to break the rules, and they're going to run people over in the process. It's not a question of, is it going to happen? Eventually, someone's disorderliness is going to hurt you. You stick around church long enough, I promise you, someone is going to be disorderly, someone's going to be unruly, and it is going to hurt you. When it hurts you, are you to stand up and fight evil with evil? No. You are to love them. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I preached on loving your neighbor, and I talked about not trying to fix your neighbors, not trying to fix your neighbor. And I said that what we try to do is we try to fix each other by being mean to each other. If I'm mean enough to you, then I can alter how you behave. Let me just remind you that you can't change me, and I cannot change you. But I can love you, and I can leave the changing up to the Lord. You say, well, pastor, that person's unruly, and if I'm hard enough on them, they'll follow the rules. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. In fact, you're going to drive their defiance where they're going to do it worse. However, if you love them, you're going to give God a window, an opportunity to fix them. No, I can't promise you they're going to change. I can't promise you that inwardly they'll ever stop. Jesus loved on the Pharisees, and then he chastised the Pharisees and scalded them, and then he loved on them again, and they still nailed him to the cross. But Jesus is not responsible for the Pharisees' actions. He was responsible for his own. We're called to warn the unruly. Let me give you some thoughts below this. These will not appear on the screen, but I encourage you to jot them down there in your notes. You are, uh, you are warning them from the Scriptures. You are warning them from the Scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Okay, remember, we're dealing with someone who's unruly, unprofitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. So if I warn them from the Scriptures where I cannot change them, the Word of God will reprove them. The Word of God will correct them. The Word of God will instruct them in righteousness and teach them doctrine. The Word of God will perfect them unto all good works. Furthermore, God's Word promises us that His Word will not return void. Isaiah 55 verse 11 says, So shall my Word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall uh, prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. So God's Word is that two-edged sword, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's piercing and dividing. It's warning the unruly. We are to use 
the Scripture. Notice next, you are so first you're to warn them with Scripture. You're to warn them with the right spirit, with the right spirit. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual. Note those words. Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, in meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. A lot of Christians, when they see someone being disorderly or unruly, you know what they do? They just want to look the other way and pretend as though it's not happening. Can I tell you, that's not what God's called us to do. He has called us to warn. But He's not called us to be a Pharisee. He's not called us to stick our finger in their face and tell them, how dare you stinking, dirty, rotten sinner behave that way? Oh, no, no, no. We're to get on our knees and we're to pray. And we're to come alongside of with a tear in our eye. And we're to warn them in love. Not because we're exposing them. Or exposing our own anger. No, we're exposing them to sin's consequences if they do not change. We are showing them the ruin that awaits them if they continue living a life that is unruly. We must warn the unruly. We must do it with the right spirit. Notice next, we're to warn them of sin's severity. Uh, the Bible says in James 1.15, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Listen, uh, I am to so care about you that if I see wrong in your life, I'm to come alongside of you and show you from Scripture how it's wrong and how your behavior is destructive and how your behavior is going to hurt you. You know, that's a lot of what we do here Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. That's why it's healthy for you to be a part of White Oak Baptist Church. And especially over the next several weeks, don't forget to tune into our services. And for the in the future, when we resume back to having regular church, you ought to be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Because the pastor, he's not trying to change you. No, he's trying to hold the Word of God high and say, Thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt and thou shalt not, for your own betterment, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs tells us, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If I'm willing to go the other way and let you do wrong and let you be disorderly and let you misbehave, then ultimately I do not care about you. I am okay with letting you walk down a path of destruction. And so we are to, we are to expose, not expose them, not embarrass them, but to expose them rather to the consequences of their actions. Letter A, warn the unruly, expose. Letter B, comfort the feeble-minded, encourage. How does a Christian love the broken? How does a Christian care for his neighbor? He must seek to be an encouragement. Look at verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded. Comfort the feeble-minded. The easy thing to do when someone is always discouraged and down, is to avoid them. Well, I'm not going to get into any name-calling this morning, but we have folks that go to church here that are just always down in the dumps. We have people in our church here that are just always sad, seem to be always discouraged and depressed, and they seem to always have a rain cloud hanging over their head. You might have somebody like that at your work, or you might have somebody like that in your neighborhood. They walk the dog up and down the street and... You don't want to see them because if you go out and talk to them, boy, they're just going to rain all over your happy day. You might be that person. (laughs) Can I say this morning that God has not called you to avoid these people? 
He's called you to comfort these people. Sometimes, as a pastor, my phone rings. And my flesh looks down at my phone and sees the name on the caller ID, and I think, oh, not this person again. You say, Pastor, you're being a little too honest this morning. God's not called me to send them to voicemail. God's not called you to send them to voicemail. God's called you to encourage them. You say, but Pastor, I've been encouraging this person for the last 30 years. And and every day they wake up and they're still depressed. Do I need to go back and remind you God's not called you to change them? He's called you to comfort them. It could be that that kind word of encouragement that you give them is enough to get them along one more day. It might be that your kind word of encouragement uh, is enough to keep them from doing something harmful to themselves or someone else. You say, but pastor, I've encouraged them over and over and over again and they won't change. And so the other thing we do if we're not going to avoid them is we scold them. Will you get your head out of the clouds? Will you, will you, will you get over yourself? Will you stop being so selfish? Will you for one time smile? Will you for one time behave differently? Will you for one time look at the positive side of things? Hey, maybe consider the fact that they're feeble-minded and that may never happen. God has not called you to change them. God has called you to a life of comforting them. Hey, let me say this morning here, if you think that you are feeble-minded, one of the best ways to get over that is to start being a comfort to others around you that you think are feeble-minded. Comfort the feeble-minded. Be a voice of encouragement. Be that refuge for them. Letter C, we see that we're to support the weak or edify. Support the weak or edify. That word edify carries with the idea of building up. Building up. I think of uh, the word edifice, which is a building. Someone took the time to lay the foundation and then lay the, the brick and then build on top of that, put the steel beams in and, and, and create the structure, the edifice, the edifying, the building up. It is the ob- opposite of destroying or tearing down. We are to edify. We are to support the weak. We are to support the weak. There are those among us that are, that are weak. There are those among us who are in and out of the hospital regularly, in and out of the ER or the urgent care. There are those among us who uh, are, are rather suffer with mental illnesses and suffer with struggles and problems. They don't need us to preach them a sermon about how weak they are. They need us to come along and to help them. Not to pick on anyone, but uh, to use a, an example all of us here know. Many of you here know Brother John Greco. Brother John Greco comes and he usually sits on the back row, one of the two seats here. He's a large guy. Struggles with his personal hygiene. Brother John has some mental handicaps. Suffers with mental illness. I've sat in Brother John's apartment many, many times and listened to him tell me about the struggles of his mental illness and how it plagues him how he suffers with it. He has begged me to pray with him weekly, uh, if not every week, uh, uh, almost every week. He and I spend time in prayer together. And um, I believe Brother John is one of the most sincere Christians that attends this church. The truth is, most folks that attend here avoid him. They look to go the other way. 
You know, Brother John's persistent. He probably calls my phone 15 to 20 times a week between my office phone and my cell phone. Um, Brother John's gotten on my nerves more than once. But Brother John needs this church to love him. I sat in his living room a couple of months ago and he said to me, he said, you know, Pastor, there was a church member who took me out for a steak dinner a couple of years ago. Picked me up, took me out for a steak dinner. He said, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. When was the last time you came along the side of someone who was just weak and you said, I'm going to love on him, even if they can't love on me back? I didn't say this in the 830 service. I probably should have. I'll add it here. To those of you at home watching online that normally have children in their nursery, I hope you'll sit up and listen for a moment. Some of those who ride our bus come in on our buses. We've had several adult women begin to ride lately. Some of these, some of these moms don't know how to be a good mom. They don't know how to teach their children how to behave. Their children come in with them and some of their kids are a little rambunctious. Their hygiene isn't up to par. Does love work or doesn't it? Has God called us to push away from the weak or to embrace the weak? We had a mom put two of her children in our nursery, and some of those children were not very well behaved. One kid hit another kid, and he was really acting in a defiant way. Now, we're not going to put up with children being violent toward other children in our nursery, and if that continues, it'll be dealt with. We had several moms threaten to pull their kids out of the nursery and not put them back in there. Because one time, a child acted in a way that was a little belligerent. I I don't mean to be unkind. I hope you're listening. If your kid gets hit, he'll survive. If your child gets spit on one time, it's not going to end his life. If love works, then it needs to start being taught to our children in the nursery. We don't need to wait till they get older. Shame on some of our moms who will keep their kids out of the nursery if they see those children in the nursery. That's wrong. Now, again, we're not going to put up with letting a child be belligerent and mean and nasty over and over and over again in the nursery. If a child really is a threat to the well-being of the other kids, we'll pull the child out of the nursery and keep them from being in there. But one time and we're ready to pull our children out of the nursery altogether over one time? As a church family, are we supporting the weak, or are we judging the weak? Are we embracing? Are we caring? Are we loving? Or are we pushing to the side and rejecting? I know this. There are times in my life, and there are areas in my life, where I have weaknesses. Boy, there are areas in your life where you have weaknesses. I don't think you want people throwing stones at you and pushing you to the side in those areas. And I know I don't want that in mine. We need to support, edify, love on the weak. This ought to be a place where people of every socioeconomical class can come and feel embraced and cared and loved for. This ought to be a place.
place where moms and dads of every level, no matter the behavior of their children, can come and be loved on and cared for. This ought to be a place where people of every race and color and creed can come and be loved on and cared for. And they're not judged, they're not judged based on the color of their skin. They're judged, uh, uh, based on, uh, the Word of God. And they love others and they let God uh, do the changing from within. They support the weak. They support the weak. <clears throat> Letter D, lastly, notice, be patient toward all men. Endure. Be patient toward all men. The thought there is endure. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. Be patient. Be patient toward all men. Do you know what these three groups of people do? They wear on your patience. You, you know, uh, someone who is constantly breaking the rules, someone who is constantly discouraged, someone who is not able to care, take care of themselves, the Bible says you are to show them a great amount of patience. Oh, how short on patience we run sometimes. God has called us to encourage the discouraged. Even if they're never encouraged, we're to continue to float out that encouragement. We're to continue to pump them full of encouragement. Even if it seems it makes no difference, we're to continue to edify the weak and support the weak and love on them. Even if it means they never ever are strengthened, we're uh, 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 told to warn the unruly and expose them to sin's consequences, even if they never change and they never uh, develop within us a spirit of vengeance and to do so with a spirit of patience. We're to do this, these things tirelessly, knowing the unruly may never change, knowing the feeble-minded may never make a corner, knowing the weak may never become strong. What we do with these people is not based on their change, it's based on our own Christian character and doing what's right. God has called us to do these things with a spirit of patience, a spirit of patience. Christian, I want to ask you this question this morning. Do you really believe that love works? Do you believe that God can take His love and through you, channel it through you, and radically change others? Then let's go forth and love a broken world. I finish with this. The world today has never been, it is never, rather it has never been more evident than it is right now how broken the world is. This coronavirus... COVID-19, Chinese virus, whatever it is you want to call it, depending on how offensive you want to be. It has uh, never, uh, it, it, this virus has exposed how broken our world is. This is the time for Christians to step into the light and say, let me be a help to you. Let me love my neighbor. Let me be a blessing to those in need. And I would encourage you this morning to love your fellow man. Let's love the broken. Lord, would you take the message this morning, would you impress it to our hearts? Would you help us to see and know, God, that you are with us, that you care for us, and that, Lord, you never stop loving on us, even in our broken state. Help us, Lord, to mimic that love. Help us, Lord, to care for those around us. Help us, Lord, to put you first in all we say and do.